Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Tethered Nation, you've often heard me talk about Tethered and their saddle setups and how much I love them and that I've given them credit for helping me expedite my learning curve or becoming a more mobile and more aggressive hunter, especially whenever it comes to doing out-of-state hunts. Well, their previous saddle setup, was, there's nothing wrong with it. I've used it for two years, but they've decided to up their game if you've not heard and have released the Phantom saddle. And the thing that they've updated this is, is sizing. Oftentimes, people are asking what size they need to buy based on their waist size. Well, they've kind of eliminated that and created a one-size-fits-most uh, saddle size, which is a tw- for, goes from a 28-inch waist to a 40-inch uh, waist. They developed comfort channels. One of the biggest things people would talk about is just like overall comfort when they get into the saddle. The saddle is comfortable to begin with, but how could they increase that even more? So what they did is they created comfort channels on the uh, loop in which the bridge kind of connects into. And your bridge position will have a lot to do with uh, how comfortable your sit might be because it's going to determine where the pressure of your saddle is being placed on your body. So if you need a little bit more back pressure, you move it to the higher comfort channel. If you need a little bit more pressure or support underneath your rear end, you move it to a lower comfort channel. The other thing, one of the biggest things I think, you know, overall is, you know, that has to do with comfort is how high you're sitting your tether. And a lot of times when you're getting into a tree, depending on the size of the tree, where the branches are, things of that nature, you can't always get your tether height exactly where you want it to be. For me, I like to set mine right about neck height. But if I have a branch that's in the way and I'm hunting public ground and I can't cut it, I might need to set it higher or lower. And that's going to impact the length of my bridge uh, away from me essentially, or the, or the distance from me to my tether. And the only way I can adjust that is by having an adjustable bridge and tether has created the utility bridge, which allows you to make that adjustment on the fly, super easy to kind of adjust that length to the optimum position for you to have the most comfort. The other thing that I'm really stoked about that is probably a little bit underlooked is the lineman loops. Now their lineman loops on the mantis are fine, but they're not as rigid as the ones on the Phantom Saddle are. And the reason why they're a little bit more rigid and bigger on the Phantom Saddle is that it's a lot easier to find them whenever you're trying to you know, ascend or descend in the dark. So for all these reasons, if you've not checked out Tethered, I would go to tetherednation.com, check out their saddle gear, and specifically take a look at the Phantom Saddle. 
The first thing I do in the morning before a hunt, before a scout, or just before getting ready for work is have my morning coffee, and I'm sure most of you out there listening are the same. Make sure you're filling your mug with Skull Brew Coffee, as it is the only coffee company that is both 2% for conservation certified and donates 10% of its profits to conservation organizations to help secure the future of our wild places. So head to SkullBrewCoffee.com and choose between three killer roasts of coffee and know that you are supporting conservation with every sip. Welcome to the Truth From The Stand Deer Hunting Podcast brought to you by Skull Brew Coffee Company. I'm your host, Clint Campbell, and you're listening to episode number 172. Today I'm joined by my good buddy, Bo Martonic of East Meets West Hunt Podcast. Mountain bucks, big woods bucks, scouting, and Idaho elk are all on the agenda today, so stay tuned. All right, all right, all right. What is up, everyone? Happy Wednesday to you. Hope you are doing well. Hope you are feeling fine. Day number, man, I don't even know what this is. I'm in the I'm in the twenties of of very limited uh, human human contact. But I will say, this past weekend felt just a little bit more normal than than the than the others. Um, I was actually able to get out and do a little bit of scouting which was awesome. Um, you know, went into this piece. I was planning to get back the past couple weekends, but the weather just hadn't hadn't worked out and there's been some odd circumstances of course that you know trying to work through and and all those types of things so you know scouting wasn't necessarily the the highest thing on my priority list, but managed to kind of get back into the swing of things this weekend headed out to this piece. It was a piece I had been on before. Um, you know, it's kind of a large chunk so it's it's going to take a couple different sessions uh, to kind of get through all of it. Um, and I kind of scouted, I guess I'll put it this way. The, the largest part of the, of, of this chunk, I've kind of gone through already what I want to, what I want to look at. There might be one more piece that I was kind of looking at on the map that I may want to jump into and check out. Not a hundred percent sure yet. I did a drive by of it yesterday when I kind of wrapped up my, my, my scout officially yesterday. I kind of did a drive by to see if it was. Of any interest, I think I will head back and hit it one more time in in that general area because it could be it could be overlooked. But there was a piece, there were two pieces that I was really interested in outside of the large chunk that were kind of isolated unto themselves. That had you could walk in, um, you know, through you know through through the timber, of course, you know, or you know, water access was probably going to be your best bet. Um, the one piece I scouted previously, water access is going to definitely be the 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 key for this one. Um, so yesterday there was a piece of that I wanted to check out that was on the opposite side of the water, um, which a couple different things, which, which makes this piece kind of interesting and nice is one, you know, I, in that general area, I'm able to hunt, uh, you know, a couple different spots with a couple different, you know, wind opportunities, uh, since I'm going to be on each side of the body of water, I have some prime setups. And so I walked into this area, cedar thicket, nasty, like kind of climbing on your hands and knees almost, uh, to a to a degree to kind of get into the where the getting you know would get good and what I was really looking at was um on, there's not a lot of topo so it's not like I was looking for like a a significant pinch point as far as um you know topography would be concerned I was mainly looking at the aerial and seeing where the vegetation was changing and where those hard lines of edge were and I kind of scouted my way into those kind of quickly I saw a little bit of sign on the way in but nothing that kind of knocked my socks off and then once I got to that edge um things got a lot more interesting and I found, I think, you know, what might be 
two to maybe three possible setups, uh, depending. So a really interesting area that was, um, which was a, a primary scrape area where there was probably like five scrapes all within, man, I don't know. It was probably maybe 10 yards, if that, um, that were all kind of like in this one little area that was kind of back up against the cover because this 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 cedar thicket kind of turned into a little bit of a swamp and then kind of opened up into this kind of almost grassland kind of area and and of course like that area was pretty open and so there wasn't really any sign you know down toward what else is the water's edge but as you got back off the water's edge and got kind of closer to where the timber kind of started again and it started getting thick again that's where all the scrapes popped up and you know not surprising it's kind of where i went to to kind of check to see if there was any sign that was laid down there and sure enough, there was, um, I found that set of scrapes. And then as I kind of hiked back into the timber, I found a couple rubs that led me to a couple scrapes that were actually back in the timber, which looked really good. So there's a couple of different, you know, setups that I think that I have there that I can use. And the best way to get in is going to be basically all water access. Um, if you try to come in from the timber, you're just basically going to blow deer out. Um, and so it, the, the water access for this piece is pretty slick, actually, because I can kind of, you know, kayak or canoe right up, pull the boat up onto land, and it's going to be maybe, you know, it, it might be a 75-yard walk, you know, to the furthest setup. Um, and so I can get in pretty stealthy um, in, in, into these particular places. So that was really what the scout kind of uh, held yesterday, and I'm pretty stoked on on those two um those two particular pieces aside from that, you know, I'm going to kind of make it a full weekend of, uh, you know, doing some hunting related things. So scout, you know, this on, on Saturday, Sunday, as I'm recording this up front, kind of getting things together for the week, you know, I got a little bit of honey do list stuff to do, um, to get ready for the, uh, the spring summertime lawn kind of care stuff, but I am going to take some time, jump into my saddle and get into a tree in my backyard and, uh, and, and, and fling some, uh, and, and fling some arrows. So that's kind of what's on my agenda, trying to keep things as normal as, as possible. I guess one more thing to go back to that piece that I scouted that, you know, the only other thing I really need to do at this point, I think the hardest part, whenever you're finding new pieces is validating whether the deer that you want to hunt are there or not. Now I did find some good rubs that would suggest to me that there's probably at least a animal in there. That's of, uh, of the caliber that I'd like to chase. Um, what I do need to do is get back in there and throw up a couple, um, a couple cameras and just kind of validate that. So I probably won't hit that piece particularly again until we get into the summer and I'll go in and, and throw up a couple cameras in that general area and see if I can catch some deer and that, uh, you know, in and around those, uh, where those scrapes were at. Not that those scrapes would necessarily be open, but that was definitely a defined kind of travel route that they were using the nice thing about some of these kind of swampier setups is like, you can clearly see where the deer are moving and what lines of travel that they're, that they're, that they're kind of, uh, concentrated on. And, and those will be the places where I'll hang cameras, um, in there. It's always kind of a crapshoot the first year, uh, cause you don't have any historical data to know that there have been good deer in there in the past or, you know, or, or not. Um, but that's just something I'm going to have to, you know, kind of take a flyer on. Uh, the only thing about this particular setup is I'm not sure, of course, you know, when I'm looking at it, I'm seeing that sign and I'm saying like, okay, so deer have been here and have laid down this sign. It's likely that pre-rut, rut time frame. And I'm typically not in Pennsylvania during that time. And that will hold true again this year where I'll be leaving, you know, the end of October, beginning of November for a couple of weeks to hunt out of state. Um, you know, so I'll just kind of have to monitor that area, which means it might, you know, require a cell camera. 
to tell me when those scrapes open it up. That way, if they're opening up, you know, let's say third week of October or whatever, I'll know that I'll have an opportunity in there, um, you know, to get in there and hunt. On the other side of the body of water is the place I'm kind of looking at for the early um, early season time period. So end of October, or I'm sorry, end of September for me because we come in a little early. Um, to the, you know, early part of October where there's a, a destination food source that I'm kind of playing against and that, you know, I'll, I'll monitor with a camera. My camera set up in there will be probably pretty close to the water. So I can just kind of paddle in, hop up, check the camera and zip out and just, I'll, I'll know pretty quickly whether or not there's deer using it. Um, cause it's really a, an, an intrusive spot or non-intrusive spot to, to set up a camera to kind of get the detail or the, or the Intel that I need for, for that particular setup. So, but not going to belabor this up front, uh, much longer here. I'm going to get right into it. This was a little bit of a different setup. Um, I had my buddy Bo Martonic on, he's been on before. Um, you know, he's, he's a Pennsylvania guy. Uh, he runs the East meets West hunt podcast and I've been wanting to do this for a little while. So he and I set up an Instagram live kind of happy hour slash hangout podcast to where we did the podcast live, um, you know, allowing people to kind of jump on and watch with us. Um, I'm probably going to be doing a few more of these during this, uh, you know, weird quarantine time where we're not getting much social interaction with each other uh, or face to face interaction with each other, should I say. Um, it was a really cool kind of way to set these up so that you'll notice the audio quality is a little bit different. Um, and that is the reason why is he and I did a basically a live session and did the podcast for everyone to kind of watch and, and, and check it out. So if you're out there and you're on uh, and you follow me on Instagram, um, keep your eyes peeled because as I do these, I'll make an announcement as to when I'll do them and what time I'll be doing them. I'm sure in the, in the near future, I'll have a few more guests on uh, in that way. Gives us an opportunity to kind of hang out face to face. And also, you know, gives you guys an opportunity to jump on and ask questions uh, if you're so inclined to kind of join us and uh, and take part in the uh, in the discussion. So with that, you know, Bo and I today, we, we're, we're really kind of talking about, you know, a lot of the stuff he and I haven't had a chance to discuss over the past year since it's been about a year since he and I have really had a chance to talk the nitty gritty kind of hunting details. And so we cover, you know, his, his Idaho elk hunt, which he had a killer elk hunt. It's been four years in the making for him to fill that tag. And he did a, he did a killer, um, uh, a short video uh, on that as well called Synergy. So you might want to check out his YouTube channel and check that video out. It's 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 really cool. And then, of course, Bo's well-known for hunting mountain bucks. So we talk, of course, scouting mountain bucks versus big, book, or big woods bucks and all things kind of in between. So with that, we'll go ahead and get Bo on the line. And as always, thank you all for listening. Uh, welcome to the first <laughs> episode of the uh, live uh, Truth in the Stand collaboration podcast with uh, one Bo Martonic from East Meets West. We figured we would do an Instagram live version of this since we've all have been kind of cooped up in our houses and stuff like that. We thought, you know, everyone's doing these uh, these virtual happy hours, so we might as well join in the fun and have kind of a virtual happy hour deer hunting sesh with a cup of beverage. Did you did you stop at the beverage store? I did. Yeah, I got uh, I got thirty six bush lights, so I should be all right. <laughs> Well, I think I think this thing we're allowed to roll for like an hour, so we'll probably use all of the hour. I got myself a a, a hot toddy here. But hey, well, before we get started, hold on. You want to see what my stand is for holding my phone right now? Yeah, I would love to see this. Let's see, it, it, see what it see what kind of <laughs> <laughs> holding it up with bush lights. Yeah, yeah that's awesome. Solid. That's my mic. Uh, I love it. <laughs> I love it, man. Well, I'm rolling a hot toddy because I've been having. I've been. I don't know. I've had this like cough, and it's not the. Yeah. It's not the. Yeah. No, I don't, 
no, I don't have the bad stuff, man. I've had it for like three weeks and I don't know what's going on with it. And so it's like every night at night it's, it gets a little bit worse, but I don't have anything else going on. It's like, I don't feel terrible or whatever. It's yeah. just, it's, I've had like, it's funny this time of year, man, you wake up every morning, at least I do. And I'm like, all right, do I have uh do I have allergies today or the plague? I'm not quite sure. I know. I, have. I know. I, I sneeze like three times a day and I'm like, Oh shit. Like this, this is it. <laughs> I know. Right. It's like, here it comes, here it comes. Wheezy. It's the big one. You know, it's like, and everyone mm-hmm. at work will look at you sideways and like want to beat your ass if you're in the grocery store and you even kind of like cough a little bit or whatever. Yeah. It's getting, it's getting a little Western out there, man. A little Western. Yeah, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> So, man, I thought for this session, you know, for those out there listening, you know, we're going to, I'm going to take this too, as long as the audio kind of holds up and I'll drop this as a regular podcast uh, as well here in the upcoming, uh, upcoming time. But for those of you that are on here watching us and for those out there listening, eventually, you know, Bo and I, of course, know each other really well. We're both from PA. Um, The funny thing is, is we usually run into each other during the course of the year. Like, you know, I didn't go to ATA this year, but we usually see each other at ATA then we always see each other at Harrisburg, you know, and get to hang out and talk. But I don't think we've actually sat down and seriously talked whitetails like since last year at the BHA uh, muster in the mountains. I think that was literally the last time you and I got together and like talked hardcore about hunting. Yeah, I think it was. We haven't, yeah, we haven't sat down and recorded an actual podcast in almost a year. So it's it's been too long. It's been far overdue. And you've had a lot going on, man. So we'll just kind of, you know, for those out there listening again, we're just going to kind of keep this loosey goosey and see how this goes. This is the first iteration of this. So yeah, you, know, you, you could be in for a real treat or you could be in for a real shit show dumpster fire. You know, it's a, uh, it's, it's, this is the, this is the guns and roses version of the podcast. Should we say? <laughs> yeah. Either way I'm going to have fun. So yeah, exactly. <laughs> but man, let's go back to last year in the fall. I know um, that you went. Okay. So let me back up for a second. So you know, when we talked the last time I had you on, like the last two times I had you on, you know, you started East meets West because you have this passion for adventure and going out West and, and doing these hunts and stuff like that. And I think you and I feel a lot the same. It's like, I like to go out West as well, but it's more about that spirit of adventure and DIY hunting and stuff like that. And you've been grinding for years going out West trying to get a bull. And this was the year where you, you finally made the magic happen, man. So like, you know, I haven't really got to ask you much about that hunt. So if you wouldn't mind me, just kind of walk me through that. Cause I know it's been years in the making, dude. And I watched the video and I want to get into that too as well. But just, let's just start with like the hunt in general and the journey, the, the journey it took you on. Yeah. So, I mean, to kind of give a brief synopsis of the last four years of going out there, you know, I've, I've spent up until 2019, I'd put in over 30 days of hunting elk in the mountains in Colorado, chasing around bulls had multiple opportunities on every trip which i'm you know really thankful that i was able to do that but just couldn't capitalize it just pure inexperience and not knowing what to do in the right time i felt like i was just kind of on my own you know from white tails i've done it my whole life so when it came to out there it was just like just brand new i felt like i i didn't know you know what i was doing but anyways so i uh just kept grinding for it and said i wasn't going to stop hunting elk until i killed a bull and obviously after that i'm not gonna quit either. Right, i was gonna but, say that, that was a little bit of a, a little white lie you might have told yourself. Well, not, i wasn't gonna stop consecutively hunting elk year after year until i finally right. got a bull and uh so yeah this past year i was going out and decided to switch states which was really weird for me because i felt like i've spent all this time getting to know a couple areas in colorado like just feel like i'm getting decent with it but i just 
felt like there was some better opportunity and, you know, studying maps and doing things and, and research, I had found that uh, place in Idaho I decided to go to instead. It was it's kind of a tough decision, but man, it, I was really glad that I did it. I went out with two of my really good buddies and um, Michael and Mason, and then my, uh, then Justin Mueller who filmed the hunt, he came out it was my first time ever actually filming a hunt. So that was crazy. And I uh, met out, met up with actually a podcast listener, um, John Hallam. He camped with us and hunted. He was hunting the area too. And uh, anyways, it was, it was crazy because I was going to be there for 16 days and <clears throat> we got in the first night and kind of acclimated, slept in a little bit, you know, just did a short hike in the evening up to kind of get my lungs used to the elevation and I uh, ended up locating one bugle just before dark uh, way up on top of this ridge. And the funny part about it was seven months before that or six months before that I had sent a waypoint to Michael and Mason through Onyx and said, I labeled it bull down. It was this meadow. It just had everything you could ever ask for. It almost looked too perfect, but right. it was, um, so anyways, I picked it out and I sent it to him kind of as a joke. I was just at hundred percent chance of bull down. You know how I am with numbers right. that don't make any sense. But, uh, <laughs> so I sent that to them. And anyways, next morning I, I hiked up in there with Justin. We, we climbed up in there, a little over 2,000 feet elevation in the morning, and uh, got up there just as it was cracking daylight. Had this giant bull come right across the meadow, like picture perfect, but he was out about 100 yards and couldn't get a shot at him. So I was watching where he was going to bed, and I, I was pretty sure that was a bull that bugled the night before because it sounded like coming from the same bedding area. So I made a loop around and was switching and waiting for the thermals to kind of settle down so I could. I was planning on going into the bedroom after him and trying to challenge him, but I was just waiting for those thermals to settle. And as I'm sitting there, I'm glassing some bighorn sheep up on the top of the mountain, which is really cool. I'm looking through my spotter and, and off to my left, I glanced up and there was a saddle coming over the, the hill. So, you know, I'm thinking, you know, whitetail stuff here too. And it works the same for out there, the way they use the terrain. Right. And I spotted some cows coming over that ridge line. And when I looked up, uh, I, I saw antlers coming behind it. First was this this big spike, and I was, I was planning on shooting him too. But uh, <laughs> uh, then after him came this this five by five, and he started coming down. I saw him heading towards the meadow. So uh, Justin and I sprinted down off these rocks that we were sitting on. I got right to the edge and ranged the cows as they came out, and as he was coming behind them. And what didn't actually make the film this part though was they came and my wind was just off enough that like it was so close and they ended up busting out. So those, the cows and the bull busted out. They didn't, they just whirled and took off. And I was just like, shit, you know, I, this is my, I've been waiting four years for this opportunity. I had my pressure on my release ready to draw and it took off. So I was like, do I sprint and try to, you know, beat them to this point? They're heading back to the saddle. I'm like, I can't outrun an elk. Let's, let's be honest. So, <laughs> So I, so I just ended up sitting there waiting. I'm like, just be calm. Multiple elk have funneled down the same trail. Let it go. And it was, I was sitting there. They ended up coming. A couple more cows joined the group, and they came out on the exact same trail, the same, did the exact same thing. I mean, I'd rather be lucky than good than this one. And they came out and ended up ranging the, the bull at 60 yards and shot him right there, and he ended up falling, falling down on camera. 
in the middle of the meadow and it was I absolutely lost it like just couldn't couldn't hold back anything at that point <laughs> yeah man I I was watching I got a chance to watch it and it's first off it's a killer film um called synergy for those out there that haven't watched it yet you should definitely check it out it's well done cinematography is awesome the story's killer especially after kind of hearing you kind of give like the narration and like all the work that's gone into it watching him fall and you lose it man it's like i actually got cold bumps or cold chills like yeah. while i was watching it just because you know i know we're good buddies man it's like and i you know it's you know it's anytime you you know you have a friend who's putting in that kind of effort on these types of hunts and stuff like that whether it's western you know big you know big game hunting elk or whatever or if it's on a whitetail hunt that you're out of state and you're you know trying to get after it and having challenges and there's levels of success and failure on each trip and stuff like that it's like i'm always stoked for my buddies but you know it's interesting that you change states you know at the last i won't say at the last minute because i know you did your homework but yeah knowing that knowing that you had been going to colorado right and you kind of had some stuff dialed in like what what made you make the switch to idaho success rates i mean i know you can't always go by this and a lot of people know how to find this information now so it can be inflated but success rates were almost four times the amount of what I was hunting in Colorado. The bull to cow ratio is a lot better. Um, the elk population wasn't as high, but since Idaho caps their over-the-counter tags, um, you can't, they, they don't really control, at least in the unit I was in, they don't control how many go to specific zones or units, but it, um, there was just a lot of things that lined up. And another thing I wanted was I was hunting all this like dark timber and high country in Colorado, which is beautiful, but I wanted to see something different. And I wanted a breakup of, of open country and some dark timber. I wanted to do some glassing and kind of change up my game a little bit. So that's, it kind of, I kind of had to set what my goals were. My goal was to kill any bull elk and it was to have an experience. I wanted to have it in some of that open country mixed with dark timber, still beautiful landscape, but that's what I wanted. And that's where I went. I mean, where I was at wasn't bred. I mean, it wasn't meant to have, you know, it's not managed to have giant bulls or anything. It's meant to have good bulls and, you know, and, and a lot of them. And I can't say there was a, you know, a ton of elk there, but we got into elk almost every single day on the trip. I mean, even after I killed mine early, my two buddies never ended up filling their tags, but they, uh, they were at full draw multiple times and we just had freaking blast it's a great time yeah yeah man i'm looking forward to getting ready to go or to go back out i was supposed to go out this year with my dad to colorado um some unforeseen circumstances happened beyond the the craziness that we're going through now there was some other stuff that happened the the folks i was going to be kind of meeting up with out there they had some things go down that they they weren't able to to do it this year so have to cancel that trip which i kind of started thinking about maybe headed back out to montana with my other group of buddies you know that i went out with the first time yeah but I have uh, two whitetail hunts this year that I'm doing that I don't think I can squeeze. It was going to be really hard for me to just do the, the Colorado hunt because I was going to be doing three travel hunts this year, which is going to be, I mean, you and I are both working, working dudes. So it's not like we have, you know, all the time in the world to go do these things. You know, we have to fit it in with yeah. our work schedules and stuff like that. And so I'm actually, it was a little bit of a blessing in disguise that I, that the elk trip fell off that way. I, I didn't have to try to figure out how to, to, to log jam that thing in, but you know, it, knowing that this was the first time that you like, you know, did this kind of level of filming and stuff like that. I don't recall if, like if you've self filmed in the past or not, I can't, re- can't remember if we ever talked about that, but what was it like having like a regular, like camera guy? Cause truth be told, one of the hunts that I'm going on this year is actually with a camera guy. Yeah. And so I've self filmed. Right. 
but I've never had another person that I had to kind of like think about, worry about their wind and setups and stuff like that. And so kind of talk me through what that was like having another person. And before you answer that, those that are listening, if you guys have questions as we're going, just go ahead and chime them in and I'll try to keep up with them and see if we can't get them in as well. Yeah. So, um, I, I guess I was super nervous about the camera guy thing, especially on an elk hunt. Cause it's like elk, elk hunts are grueling. I mean, even on whitetails, just doing a rut hunt for seven to 10 days or whatever. And you're sitting in the tree all the time. That's mentally draining. That takes a lot. And to get someone to get up every morning and with elk hunting, it's a mixture of physical and, and mental and there's just a lot to it and luckily the the guy that i ended up getting was i mean awesome he just can't he was on an elk hunt before that <clears throat> successful elk hunt and he was like he had elk hunting knowledge plus the camera skills so like when i was in the morning saying we're going to get up you know two hours before light and hike up this mountain and do all this he was like yep no problem he was up before i was ready to go and <laughs> And I've heard horror stories that doesn't work that way. But for me, that was great. And I was like, all right, I need to, I need to keep this guy around for any other, any other films, you know? And, but it was, so I was really nervous because again, I've never, I've done some video stuff, but not on an actual hunt. So it was weird having a guy right here with a camera on me. And then when I'm going to shoot, if you don't add, you know, enough pressure of like, here's four years of work coming down to one second, one split decision. And I've got, a, I've got a camera right here. I've got a mic hooked on, right? Everything was just like, it was weird. But, um, it, now, if, if I'm not mistaken, before you released the air, didn't you say, if I'm remembering, if I heard it right, didn't you say you got him, you got him Yeah. to make sure yeah. he was in frame? Yeah. Yeah, I did. Which, which is, that's not nerve wracking at all. It's like before you release, like you're asking someone, do you have him in frame? Yeah, I know. And I was, and I said, I wasn't going to do that. I told him, I was like, listen, man, like what you get is what you're going to get. Cause I'm not, I'm not, if it's not in frame, it's not going to happen. And I think I just kind of said it subconsciously without even really thinking what his response was. But, uh, right. Cause I'm pretty sure that arrow left that. before you even finished your statement. I'm pretty sure it was like, you got pow and it was gone. Yeah. I'm pretty sure that, uh, yeah, I sent that arrow off really <laughs> while it was mid sentence. <laughs> yeah. For sure. But, yeah, it was uh, it, it was really cool though because Justin made it like almost like he w- wasn't there at times. Like he was just he was really good with just with doing that, and not making you feel awkward with it at all. And um, you know, a couple times, you know, I mean, I was turning around like he's you know my my buddy with me. He got to experience that moment and everything, and and he was really professional with it and and made it made it really easy. Not to mention, you know. We're we're getting off the mountain. He took a quarter. He's packing a quarter off while he's filming, taking it down. So that was, you know, really really helpful. And really, he could have left after that. Maybe stayed a couple more days to get some footage. And he stayed the rest of the hunt with us, the rest of the twelve days that we were there, and went with some of my buddies, uh, Michael and Mason. And they didn't want filmed at all. So Michael was like, you're going to be, you're going to be taking that camera and raking it off a tree here pretty quick. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. That's awesome. So did you, did you know him previously or was he, or did did he come from like a recommendation or something like that? Cause that's all, I mean, you're right, dude. It's, it's scary. That's probably like one of the biggest apprehensions I have about having a camera guy on a trip. Cause it's going to be an out of state hunt this year. Yeah. Um, Tentatively it's, it's Missouri is tentatively where it's going to be. Um, 
I've never been to the place that I'm going. I'm not going to have a chance to go out to scout. So the whole thing's going to be freelance hunting. So it's all going to be scouting, hiking, finding setups, sitting for a couple hours. If I don't like it, getting down and moving. And what, what makes me a little nervous is like, I don't like to sit still very long. And I want to make sure that whoever I'm with is cool with me setting up and sitting for two hours and being like, yeah, I'm out of here. Let's go. You know what I mean? Like yeah. tear everything down. Let's, let's get moving. Hold on, we got a question here. Make sure the mountain doesn't line up. Line up with. The, We're good, Todd. That means, yeah. that means it peaked, and if, yeah. if it lines up, I got to chug this. So, oh, is that what happened? All right, yeah, man, I've been I'm getting like, hit pretty hard with those lately, so I got to watch. All right, yeah, I'm glad <laughs> someone's keeping you in check, man. Someone, someone's got to. Um, but yeah, I'm a little nervous about that whole about that whole situation too, with like a new person that I don't know potentially going onto a piece that I've never been to, and yeah. having to figure it out on the fly and it's going to probably be a lot of moving and probably a lot of hunts where I'm not seeing a lot of deer, you know, until I start to get it dialed in. Cause that's kind of what it was in Iowa. It's like, I was seeing deer, but it was a couple of days until I started figuring out like where I needed to be and what areas I wanted to spend time in and stuff like that. So, um, going in blind is always a little bit of a, a little bit of a challenge, but where are you headed? Where are you headed next year, man? Like what are the, uh, what are the plans for the, uh, for this upcoming season for, for elk first? And we'll get into whitetails here in a second. I'm not hunting elk this year unless I draw no? a New Mexico tag, which I have in for. I really don't have time, and I'd have to figure it out. But so I'm going to Alaska to hunt caribou. Oh, you told, I remember that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's yeah. talk about that. So, yeah, I'm going um, with my buddy Michael. Uh, he's tuning in right now. I saw his name pop up. But uh, we're, we're flying, um, flying up there to north of the Arctic Circle and doing some – doing a – I think it's seven-day – hunt they're dropping us off and and just leaving us there and seeing if we can hit the migration right so taking both uh, i'm taking my as of right now this could change by tomorrow <laughs> but uh, i'm <laughs> taking my bow and he's taking his rifle and most likely i'll end up shooting it with a rifle because i'm when i go on a trip like this it's like you gotta get I, it done however you need to get it done yeah there's I had don't care really at all. I'd love to get one with bow. I just love shooting my bow, but uh, yeah, if it comes down to it, I'd, I'd definitely shoot one with a rifle. But that trip, I'm looking forward to. I went to Alaska a couple years ago. I uh, went up there for a company retreat for Heather's Choice, and we got to do some whitewater rafting and just like spend camping in the mountains. And I fell in love with that place and knew that I needed to get back there sooner than later before yeah. things got you know, super serious in my life that I, that it would make it difficult. I was like, I need to, I need to get that done now. And yeah. which I know as soon as I do it once, I'm going to want to do it more, but yeah, it's a, I went, I was in Alaska in 2003, I think was, the, was when I took a trip. Um, and it's, yeah, you're right, man. I mean, it, it just kind of gets into your blood. And it's one of those things where I think about all the time now, pulling off your stand, grabbing another, grabbing another, uh, I know my stand's falling apart. Because <laughs> I know, right took a bush light off my my mic stand here off your yeah. off your phone right. stand all right it. we got it um uh yeah so i went in 2003 and it's one of those places where it's like if you've never i mean pictures just don't do it justice you know whenever you see them on tv or, oh I, I like you got the sound in there too <laughs> um but i've yet to get back my hunt was actually a bear hunt and a and a blacktail hunt while i was out there and saw a ton of bears i think i saw 13 bears while I was there or 12 or 13 bears. Um, 
it's just really tricky. You have to kind of watch for a long period of time to make sure if it's a, you know, a, a mother with cubs that doesn't have cubs. And so you typically need to watch for like 30, 40 minutes because the mother might be out kind of, you know, foraging or whatever. And there could be cubs in the bush or whatever, you know, 50 yards away. And then they'll come waddling out. And I had a situation like that where I had an opportunity and I watched her for probably a half an hour. And I was just kind of getting ready to pick my spot. I was like, all right, where do I want to try to take a shot? And then I just kind of looked over to the left and like all of a sudden these two little cubs hopped out. And I was like, uh, I just spent like the entire day watching this like clear cut, you know what I mean? Watching this yeah. bear mess around until it got close enough. And then, uh, you know, I ended up not getting a shot. But that migration is cool, man. I mean, you know, it, how do you, how do you kind of catch up with them on a migration? I mean, I'm assuming there's pretty defined like places I would imagine that people know that their migratory path is going to take them through this particular area. Yeah. So it, um, so we're flying with, uh, we're flying with an, um, an aviation company that, that that's what they do. They fly people in for DIY caribou hunts, but they, they have a pretty good idea how the migration is going from flying people in. They have an idea kind of how it's going at that point. So you don't really know where they're dropping you off until, you know, really until you get there and they have an idea where you could be at and, and try to help you out. So that's, what's really nice about these type of hunts is, I mean, it's, it's do it yourself, but at the same time, you're having a little bit of guidance from those aviation companies to try to hit you in places. I have no idea how you'd figure out their migration otherwise, right. you know? So, right. Unless you're, unless you've been there and have had experience or whatever the case might be. Yeah. A, a person just had a question here. Uh, I think it was pert near outdoors. Those fellows was up fellows. Um, just was asking, how do you get the animal or how do you get the meat out? I'm assuming that you just pack it out like you would an elk to your extraction point and then plane would come in and, and zip you out. Yeah. So, um, I just read that it, so yeah, we, if say if we got one on day one or whatever, we'd be keeping that, that meat throughout and find a way to keep it cool but we're going in late august it's not going to be extremely warm from what i'm told i haven't been there obviously at that point but um either you know down by a creek or lake or in some shade should be fine with keeping it before they come and pick us up but they, they're not going to come in on a special trip to get the meat you know ahead of time and in reality we're going to be hunting for a total of five days um is it so it right. that shouldn't be a very big deal at all if you know i'd you know i'll be i'll be okay if i'm trying to figure out how to deal with that if i get one that early in the trip or right, you michael, might have to, or michael for that matter right right you might have to go old school man and like make yourself like a little smoke hut to smoke it and cure it you know get yep get, get that outside layer on there <laughs> that's right that's right get a little bear grills action even though he's a phony but our, our luck <laughs> is that we'll end up getting weathered in for an additional like 12 days and we'll have to eat the whole caribou before we can get out. <laughs> yeah. That's one place, man, where I would not want to get weathered in would be, would be that area. You know, I mean, the place that I was at was, was remote, but it was actually an old logging town that had since, you know, the logging industry had left it. And so I think at its peak, there was 400 people that lived there. Mm -hmm. And when I got there, there was, I mean, good Lord, there their grocery store was half the size of my basement and it doubled as their gas station and their post office. Yeah. You know what I mean? So it was like, there was nothing and you had to pontoon plane or ferry and like there was, it was an island. So there was, there was only one way, you know, or two ways in and two ways out. And that was it. Um, but it's interesting, you know, folks that live in that kind of isolation, man, it's like they, I think we're getting a little appreciation for it now with what we're kind of, you know, working with as far mm -hmm. as, you know, not being able to have all like the, uh, 
access to things that we've typically had access to. And, you know, you think about it, some of these folks that live there, I remember the guy that was getting, was helping us unload the pontoon plane. Like he worked for, there was a, a set of cabins that were there that we actually were running from a guy while we were hunting there. And it was an unguided hunt. Like he didn't have a guide's license or anything like that. I mean, he was cool enough that when we get up in the morning, we would be looking at a map and say, hey, we're thinking ahead in here. And he'd be like, that's a good spot. You know, that's a good, you know, I'd head over to that area. And that's about the extent that he could help us. And uh, he had a fellow that worked for him that was helping us get our bags out. And uh, he lived literally in the back of his truck with a capper on it with his dog. And that's how he lived. On the, and he would just park. I, I'd see him in the evenings when we'd be driving back. There was just one access road. And he would always be parked on this little overlook looking down into this valley. And his truck was always there. And that was kind of his home, you know. Yeah. And it was just one of those things that really made me think. I was like, man, I was like, this dude is happier than a pig in shit living, yeah. living like that you know what I mean? To where you couldn't pay him enough money to come live how I live. You know, it was like, he just wouldn't want to do it, you know? Yeah. And what, what's funny about like, not really funny, but what the whole situation that, you know, we're dealing with here and, and everyone's staying at home or staying away from people and stuff, you know, for me, I mean, I kind of thrive on being alone a lot of times. Like I feel like I'm pretty good with it, but when it comes to, I remember the first trip I did out West. I'm sure Alaska is going to feel a lot like this first trip was when you go without even cell service for five or six days, think about like, that's something I never thought. Like, I'm like, I don't need my cell phone. Like I'm good. But like when you're so used to having that and looking at it, just not, you feel, you get this sense of anxiety. Like you're like something's going on that you can't, um, you can't, I don't know, connect with people or you're not talking to really anyone. And it's just, it can, it can really mess with your head. And just like when you're in these remote places and you, you got to figure out how you're getting the food and you're trying to get water, you got to drop a thousand feet elevation to get water and you got to do all these things. It's like, man, how do you, it, you really, when you come back, you appreciate so many things. Like I you know, came back to work and the things I used to bitch about, like it wasn't a big deal anymore. And, right. and I, I think a lot of those, these hunts have, you know, kind of in a weird way prepped me for, just dealing with whatever, you know, it's kind of thrown, thrown my way. And, but I think Alaska is going to be an eye opener with Michael and I just getting dropped off literally in the middle of nowhere. Like you can't like when I'm out West, I'm always within a day's hike of my vehicle. You know, I can always get back to my vehicle if shit really hit the fan and it was not good. But there you're kind of, kind of in trouble, you know, if we, if I get something into you get into a grizzly attack or something and Michael goes down, I'm just going to have to, I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to eat them, <laughs> you know, I'm going to, you know, there's nothing else I can do. I, I you know, I don't want to waste, you know, hitting that SOS button on my end reach and getting charged like 30 grand. Michael, I, I apologize, buddy. Like I still got the money. Yeah. You, just, you, you, you wrap that caribou tag around him and you, you take his caribou tag, you put it on him and you're all good. Yeah. That's, that's all you can do. Oh man. No, it, it is different. It is different when you're in those types of places, man, where it's like where you're really, really isolated, you know, or really, really away from anything. And that there's not, you know, it, even if you wanted to make a good effort, you know, um, unless you're truly like a survival expert, like there's not a snowball's chance in hell you're going to make it, you know yeah. what I mean? Like that's, that's what it comes down to. Right. I mean, there are some folks who can live out there like that, but they're few and far between. And I think you and I probably know a lot of like good hunters and outdoorsmen and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And I don't know any of them. You could drop in the middle of Alaska and, and lose their ability to communicate or get extracted. And that would survive for, you know, a, a super long period of time. Yeah. You know what I mean? Cause it's, 
hunting and a, being a survival expert are two very different things. You know, it, being oh, yeah. a good hunter or being a good outdoorsman or a good woodsman does not equate to being able to survive whenever shit hits. Uh-huh. Yep, yep. It's the the simple things of like that. You even okay. So even every guy wants to sound super tough when it comes to building a fire. Okay, sounds really simple, and mm-hmm. you know it can be. But you get the points for okay. You have you, everything's wet, and you don't have you know good fire starting wood or trees or anything. I mean, I I dealt with this last year in Pennsylvania. We were went on a backpack hunt and. And during rifle season, it was raining and wet, snow and stuff, and nothing was dry. I couldn't get anything dry. I could not get a fire going. I felt like, like very inadequate. Was, yeah, I felt like, <laughs> what am I doing here? I luckily I had this nice sleeping bag, and you know, I I was fine. But it was just the fact that I was like, man, I couldn't get a fire going. You know, for, you know, I thought I was pretty decent doing that. I could imagine you get up there and say you get something happened in the bush and you're gone for however many days and that stuff starts happening continuously little things like that it just would right fuck with your mind right so that's where i that's where you know i guess i just proved i'm a little bit more of a man than you because i was out in the (laughs) i was uh and when i was in uh montana it was pouring rain i forget which day it was it was toward the back half of the hunt and i was completely soaked just like like there was not a dry spot on me and it was super cold and i was like waiting for my buddies to kind of all meet up at this one spot that we were going to hike out. And it was one of those types of cold where it was like, man, I need to get warm. I can't like, I either need to continue to hike or I need to like make a fire. Right. Mm-hmm. And there was not anything that was dry. Fortunately, I had a little bit of a, like some, uh, dryer lint that I had taken and like put, you know, uh, some, uh, petroleum jelly on it and kept it in like a nice, like watertight little container. I was able yep. to bust that out and found just enough dry stuff to get that to spark just to get like a little, some embers rolling and was able to find a little bit of dry wood to get to a point where I could get just a little fire going. And then we had a nice little fire under that tree. So if there was any debate who was the, who was the, the, the better man here with the. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you know what's crazy too is like places like Colorado, you could start a fire by blowing on everything yeah. so dry. And like, then you get like this, I don't know what the technical term is for the dry moss that hangs in all like the conifer trees out there. Yeah. That stuff burns by you could light a you could light a match over here and a tree down there and starts catching on fire. Like it's yeah. no wonder the West burns so easily. It's it's different yeah. there than if you're in a wet climate, you know, and, and being able to figure it out. It's it's amazing. But yeah. Yeah. Well and now and now my, my best fire starting method is hand sanitizer and I can't get that shit. Yeah, no, you can't get it anymore. <laughs> it's like you're you're out, you're out of luck. You're out of luck. Yeah. Um, but man, let's shift gears here because, you know, I'm just being sensitive to how much time we have because this only lets us do this for like an hour. Um, and we're about 30 ish, 35 ish minutes in. I want to switch gears here to, um, to whitetails. And yep. I know, you know, we've talked about this, you know, when you and I have been on before, you know, mountain bucks, you and I both like to hunt elevation. You more so than me, you get more of an opportunity to just by the nature of where you live and stuff. Yeah. Um, but I know you're doing a lot of prep this time of year. How's uh, how's everything coming? How's your scouting this year? You know what's uh, what's shaking with that? Good man. I um, I changed my my strategy a little bit with it. And I might have talked to you a little bit offline with it. But last year I wanted to hunt about 95% new places, brand new, never walked into them before. So I scouted all spring. I just spent covering ground and trying to find, and it it was difficult hunting that way last year i bounced around a lot of areas and and this year you know i'm narrowing down to a few spots i'm still going to have probably four or five different like 
big locations, but really try to narrow it down and learn those areas of spring. So that's what I've been doing is breaking, taking bigger chunks and narrowing it down. And that, that's kind of, you know, I, I look at scouting from like a three-year strategy for places. It takes me really three years to figure out a place. You know, I, you can go into a new spot, like say you would in Missouri, and you can kill the first year. That's not, not out of the question, but it's to actually understand it and how the deer are moving and using it. It takes a while. So anyways, I've been, I've been scouting some areas that I have in the past and still, I'm, I'm still checking out new areas because I just love, I don't know. I like seeing what's over there and, uh, but, but getting to learn it more and try to break down these small pieces and, and, uh, I'll have a little over a week to hunt in the rut again this year. And I'm having Justin coming out to film it. So that's, that's been cool Been focusing on that and, it's been a really productive scouting season. I haven't had as many miles in this year as, as I typically would, you know, I, I bought a house at a bad time and got to work on that. So uh, <laughs> I bought a house at a bad time. <laughs> yeah. There's not really a good time as I looked at it. I was like, right. It's busy most of the year. So it's, it's, it is what it is. But, uh, <laughs> so anyways, been d- doing that, but, uh, yeah, it's I'm I'm really excited to see what it looks like this year. How about how about you? Have you gotten out at all? Yeah, man, I got out. I had a I the bummer of it was is I was tracking really good. Um, I had made a goal for myself, like so I like you. It's like I changed my strategy up a little bit this year, or probably like over the past two years. And last year, adopted it. This year, it's I don't want to say it's set in stone, but like I feel really comfortable about my approach now, uh, more so than I have in the past. And actually, mine's almost the opposite of yours where it's like I've actually stopped uh, like uh, picking places apart necessarily, you know what I mean? Like really, really in depth Um, and more so speed scouting areas and not really wanting to know too much about what's going on. Only that I do see some sign historically, either from last year or maybe even years prior, whenever I'm looking at rubs and stuff like that. And I typically now even, I prefer almost to go in blind. Um, Part of the reason being is that, you know, when I do that, I feel like I'm, I'm much more free and I make decisions based on real time information that I'm seeing on the ground, like as I'm moving, um, yep. versus getting into a little bit of like paralysis analysis and trying to make choices based mm. off of things that I've seen in the past or whatever. And it really paid dividends for me this year. Cause I had a couple, I had two deer in particular that were on the PA public, you know, down here around me, you know, around the, you know, Eastern part of PA. And, <laughs> you know, one of them was in, uh, you know, one small kind of chunk of public. And I knew I was really only going to have probably the early part of the season to get on him if I was going to have a chance. Cause that part was going to get, that piece was going to get hammered. Um, and I knew it was probably more of like a September, late September, early October kill. And then once duck season came in, cause it's around a swamp. I knew that place was getting get pounded with duck and goose hunters, which it did. I got shot at actually while I was in the tree, which was, which was a great time. Um, <laughs> but that deer never showed up where I thought he was going to show up. So I ended up scouting my way through on the, on the eastern side of that piece and i actually ended up catching up to him in like a piece of cover along the along the swamp and i ended up bumping him and never got a shot at him and that was kind of like i knew that that piece was kind of probably dead at that point mm-hmm. and then there was another piece that i just by happenstance drove by the one day and just threw a camera on during the summer and there were there were two deer in there that were decent there was one that was probably like a i don't know he was a 125 130 inch nine point good deer for this area um for public and uh I thought I knew where he was at. I didn't think he was living when I caught his picture. I thought he was living on the, I guess it'd be the western side of that property, um, near near a swamp as well. 
And so I did a quick scout through the one day and I found a bunch of scrapes that had been opened up underneath these, uh, underneath these uh, like young oak trees. And they were all tore There's like six of them in a really small area. And I was like, primary scrape next to side cover. It doesn't get much better than this. They were all fresh. I could still see where the ground was. Like the dew hadn't smashed the dirt down yet. You know, yep. so it was still kind of fluffed up. So I knew that it was probably just tended in the morning before he went back to bed, you know, no less than 24 hours, at, at, you know, at max is, you know, the latest that would have been. So I climbed a tree and sure enough, that deer came out, but he dark deered me and I couldn't see my pin to get a shot off. So yep. I ended up having an encounter with both the deer. I had both of them on camera, but I didn't have any real information about, uh, about the, uh, about either of the pieces. Cause I'd never hunted them before. Mm -hmm. Um, and so that was kind of my same approach when I went to Iowa was I did go out, you know, last March and scouted and then went out in this November and hunted, but the places that I scouted, I ended up not even hunting. I ended up hunting an area that I just, I was talking to a local and he was like, Hey, have you checked this spot out or, or this lake out this lake area? And I was like, no, I was like, I was actually going to head over there tomorrow. He's like, yeah, he's like, you know, he's like, there's always really good deer over in that area. You know, so I went over there and I just found all kinds of rubs and scrapes and ended up getting on a deer, missed a really good deer, missed him twice, <laughs> and then ended up killing my deer in that general, in that general area. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of, but this year it's like, so similar to you, it's like, I'm always trying to find new places because I want places to go. So I know where those places are at that I hunted last year. And I, I kind of know how the deer are going to use it just based on where the pressure's from. So I know where I can focus and where I can kind of scout through and try to find the hot sign. So I really didn't spend any time on those again this year. Um, I'll probably put a camera or two up on them. And then I started hitting some other bigger chunks of public that are a couple thousand acres a piece and started kind of tearing those apart. Um, and one of them was with Litzinger. I went out with Greg the one day and he and I scouted and we found these little things, man. I don't know if you ever see this. I'm curious to ask you, but clear cuts around here aren't, aren't real. <clears throat> how do I say it? Um, they're not the right age for them to be really good for, for deer, put it that way. They're usually too old. Right. Um, but what I found is, is like, it's obviously the densest cover. And so like the deer is still kind of headed there, especially whenever gun season hits and whatever. And a lot of these places, like I'll walk through and I don't see sign anywhere except around a lake. I found a little, like a good spot with some good sign that I'll probably hunt. Um, what's that guy? Drink hard, hunt easy. Someone said, (laughs) nice. Um, but, uh, what I found is like there wasn't a lot of sign in those areas in general. And then once I got to the clear cuts, like there really even wasn't much sign on the edges of clear cuts. And that's where, you know, guys will want to spend time. So what I ended up doing, you know, Greg and I ended up hiking to the center of this one piece. And what I started doing is finding like where there's a water ingress into the clear cut itself. Cause usually there's on a, they're on a little bit of a slope. And if I follow that water ingress in, it eventually will hit a spot where it flattens out a little bit and water will start to pool to the point where trees can't grow in it, but it'll be all swamp grass. And then there is where you'll start to see the highways and you'll see hammer rubs laid down and stuff like that. And what I found is like the best sign I found has been inside the clear cuts, actually following those little water ingresses into it, into like what I've been referring to as like mountaintop swamps. And so that's kind of what I've been scouting, like on all these different pieces is just headed, look at the map, basically go, Hey, here's where the clear cuts are at, beeline it to it, find where the water's getting in, follow the water. And then I usually end up finding where all their travel corridors are at and finding yeah. hammer sign, finding beds. And so that's been kind of like the thing that I figured, I won't say I figured out that I'm going to kind of test out this year. So that's so, kind of been my approach. So what's interesting about those older clear cuts is I, I would hunt the in, interior of those um, more so than I would a younger one. Mm-hmm. And the, 
especially if you get those logging roads or anything like what I haven't seen anything where it's like a swamp like that that goes into it, but anything that creates a travel corridor in those. And for me, it's those logging roads and where a lot of times they'll intersect in the center of the clear cuts and you'll find a lot of scrapes. You'll find them traveling through there in a rut crossing. The problem is, is the trees are big enough where it's, it, it's really hard to set up in there. It's right. super so that's- hard. You know, like the trees are yeah. this big and, and, I, and I can get in that in my saddle, but it's really difficult to, to really keep yourself concealed. I've done it and I've been busted. It's been, you know, with a lot of those older ones, I'll hunt those off the ground more than I would in a tree. That's exactly kind of the, the thing. Cause the one thing I've been trying to focus on this year um, and learn more about, and I've had guys on the podcast to try to learn. Cause obviously I can't go out and try Turkey hunting will be my first tr- chance to try to go out and, use a similar method maybe it might be a good example but um you know like guys like zach farrenbaugh or you know uh jared scheffler from out white tunnel drown yeah. have them on to talk specifically about ground hunting because this year it's like i got a ghillie jacket where my saddle in if there's a tree to get into i can get into it great if not i'm equipped and ready to hunt from the ground and that's kind of been my approach is that to be able to kind of be multiple and be able to set up on whatever the terrain is going to give me because a lot of these areas that i'm hunting around here the best setup isn't in a tree because I'm in near a swamp and they're not really ever going to come out far enough very often to give you that opportunity. Like you got to kind of get in the shit with them. Um, yeah. And there's just not, and there's just typically not a tree, even hunting out of my saddle, I will still struggle to find the right tree to get yeah. into, you know what I mean? Yeah. And, uh, and so I've, I've walked by plenty of setups the past probably two years because I just wasn't confident in my ground game that I passed it by and I'm looking at it. Like I did it this late season. I walked by a spot. It wasn't good for late season. I marked it for a spot in October where it's like, there's these two huge rocks that create a pinch. There's a swamp on the one side of it. And it's actually ha- where I think that deer came from that I got dark deered over those scrapes. Cause it's about 150 yards from that. Mm-hmm. And there's an Oak tree that's right there. That's dropping acorns. And I'm like, man, October, that's a baller setup, but there's not a tree to get into that. Like you can't, you don't want to be in that Oak tree. Otherwise you're going to be right over top. Of the deer as they're, as they're coming to that pinch. So you have to hunt it from the ground is the only way to set up on it. And so that's kind of the, uh, you know, that's, that's kind of what my plan is for this year in, uh, in those areas. But, you know, so, so what are the areas, man, when you're going to look at new spots in, uh, uh, you know, looking in, in the mountains, you know, what are you specifically looking for? Like as far as topo features or anything like that, that you're saying, Hey, this is the area that I want to check out, especially when you're going in somewhere that you've never, you don't have any experience in. So the first thing I'm looking for, I'm going to look at the train and see what you're looking. And I think there's, there's two separate deer that, that I'm hunting. There's the big woods deer and then there's mountain deer. And I think they're two separate things that we're looking at here. Mm-hmm. So I'm looking at the train. First of all, if you get something with steeper train, I'm marking some of those, you know, South and East facing slopes that have points that are coming off where you're, they'll, they'll bet anywhere, but those are your best opportunities for having a buck bedded off of there, but with a, dom- a predominantly westerly winds that are coming in the time that I'm hunting, which is normally late October into November, just from a time standpoint. But, um, so, but anyways, I'm marking, you know, those points, I'm looking for different areas where you might have a bunch of valleys, uh, running together where you might have a saddle at the top of the hill. Looking at that, I'm looking at even down to the creek bottoms. If you're in less steep terrain, where you're not going to have, when you have really steep valleys, you cut in the creek bottoms, just you get swirling winds. But if you yeah. get an area that kind of gradually goes down, I have difficulties 
being able to explain this on a regular podcast. Now I get to do some visuals here. So you got your, you got your hands going, man. It's I got like my hands like going. So you get a nice little, you know, valley <laughs> going into it. You can, you know, find a creek bottom spot where you have a bunch of different valleys or draws that are running into one location. And a lot of times you'll find a beaver pond in that spot, which is going to funnel them to one side or the other, have some trail crossings. I look for those type areas. All right. Then, so after I, pick out, I start marking these spots ahead of time. Then I, I turn off the topo layer and I go on to, um, the high, either hybrid or just straight aerial where I start seeing terrain differences. You know, if I'm hunting federally owned public land, I can see the clear cuts and you can see the ages of them. But even if you don't have that feature on, if you're hunting state game lands or state forest, you can still see what looks like an old clear cut or a new one just based on the vegetation. And, I'm looking for those edges. All right, so where are these edges lining up with certain terrain features? If I have a clear-cut edge that's lining up with this draw or the saddle there, that might be a pretty decent area that's going to funnel them not only from the terrain but the vegetation. And trying to find all those things, and those are the areas I'm going to mark and check out. I'm always going to mark clear cuts. Logging cuts are like they're the they're the food plots of the big woods and. Yeah. They're, they can be really difficult to hunt, but they are, they are very, they're money. I mean, I, I, and I truly believe that areas that have logging, a lot of logging have bigger deer than areas that are just big old growth forests. And the reason I believe that is just the food. There's so much food in those areas um, from the, depending on the year, say you get a, a three to eight year old clear cuts, my favorite to hunt. And you got, you got briar bushes coming up, blackberry briars sucks walking through that but they love eating those chewing on the edges of them you have ferns coming up they're going to eat that you have all this new growth branches coming up there's just so much that's you know available for that but anyways i'm looking at vegetation features and train features and where those kind of overlap and i'm looking at that again mostly from hunting the rut because that's when i have the time to hunt that's when i'm off work that's my best chance of getting on a deer so that's where i'm focusing most of my signs if I'm going to be, say, hunting steeper train and I'm focused on an October hunt, I'm going to be looking out towards those points. I'm going to look out towards where they're going to be bedding and going to go in there and check out for previous sign of, say, acorns or areas that don't have oak trees. In Pennsylvania specifically, we have really good cherry crops, so looking for black cherries and seeing where, you know, they could potentially be feeding in, in regards to that bedding area and bedding cover and trying to set up as close as possible without I, this. I tried getting super aggressive this past year with like setting up over the beds and was having some difficulties with they're, they're bedded in some of those areas in the mountains because they have everything to their advantage. So yeah. I'm trying to stay off a little bit, you know, and I'm not, I'm still pretty aggressive, but like it's, I'm staying off it depending on the foliage anywhere from 70 to 200 yards. I mean, it all depends on how thick it is and how everything's looking there. But yeah. Yeah. It's a, the one big woods piece that I was scouting uh, this past well, couple weeks ago with Sylvester. Um, similar thing where it's like I found a couple beds. Um, there was really only one bed that was down to the dirt. Cause you know, I think you probably have a similar experience. Like in the big woods, man, it's like, they'll drop down a bed anywhere. It's like, they yeah. don't, all, you know what I mean? It's like, it's all bedding. You know what I mean? Cause it's just, it's so vast. They don't have super defined lines of, of movement necessarily. That's mm-hmm. why it's like a lot of times, you know, I'll, I'll just admit it. It's like, I like to hunt those places during the rut because 
yeah. to try to find where they're bedded and kill them in October, unless you've got like a hot scrape that opens up sometime in, in like mid October or something like that, to where you can get on like that movement, or you just have so much experience with a specific deer that you figured out where he spends his October time or whatever. Yeah. It's, it, I don't know how you kill a deer in there in October consistently. So I usually will focus my well, energy in the, in, you know, in that rut time period in those places too. I look at it as if you're, if you're going to be consistent at killing deer in either early season or late season, in the big woods, you need to have consecutive days and you need to be able to scout and you need to find that hot food source. You need to find something that's, doing it for you know us that are say hunting the weekends or a little bit after work you can't get on top of it in in my opinion in the in the amount of time you need to be able to do it for me having one saturday you know hunt after a whole week by the time the next weekend comes around everything's changing things are constantly changing food sources are leaves are dropping off the trees they're bedding in different spots it's 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 really difficult to uh be able to figure that out but it's um it, it makes it it makes it fun but that's why i focus on the rut when you're talking about bedding being all over i was scouting the other day and i just jumped deer bedded in just like the weirdest places i'm like why <laughs> trying to logically do it just hurt my brain it just wasn't making any sense whatsoever the same thing the iowa hunt i was walking through a spot where i was like it was in the morning and i'm walking through and i'm just kicking deer up left and right and i was like you gotta be kidding me and there wasn't it wasn't like i was walking through like a clear cut or i wasn't walking through like anything that you would look at and say, Oh, that's obviously betting. You know what I mean? It was just, yeah, they bedded down anywhere. That's the one interesting thing about the place in Missouri, the places in Missouri I'm looking at is that, you know, it's, it's one of those things where I almost prefer to have really harsh, like topo lines because it kind of, it weeds out a lot of stuff for me. And like Missouri, the area I'm hunting is very similar to, topographically to where I was hunting in Iowa, where it's like very bluffy to where it's like, even looking like when you're looking on the map, it's just like, nothing looks severe enough to like either go, Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, Or, you know, subtle enough to go, Oh, that's a subtle little whatever, you know what I mean? Um, so it's going to be, it's going to be interesting. I kind of do the same thing as you. It's like, I look at those defined lines of transition, right? It's like, yeah. where are those lines at? If I can find them with, you know, whether it's, um, you know, whether it's cover or vegetation or whatever the case might be, it's like, I'll just beeline it to those kind of areas whenever I get there, especially on freelance hunts. It's like, cause I know deer like edge, I should be able to pick up some sign and then start heading in a direction to follow wherever that's going to lead me and then start to put pieces together. And then I'll start to be able to figure out like, okay, they're really using this type of terrain feature in this area, or there's a Creek crossing right here. That's really getting hammered or whatever the case might be. So, you know, I'll look for, for those types of things, but we only have probably like five more minutes here. And I wanted to ask you, cause I know you're, this is something new for you this year. I think it was new for you this year, but how was your transition to uh, hunt out of a saddle this year? Man, it was, um, it was interesting. I didn't start using a saddle and I didn't get, get it in the mail till like third week in October. So I just jumped right in it and went no practice, which I would not recommend to anybody <laughs> practice, practice, practice. Um, but I loved it. Um, it, it took me probably two days to figure out my comfort settings and how I'm adjusting everything and moving around. But I hunted like six straight days, dark to dark in it, just as comfortable as I'd be in any tree stand. And I just felt great, lightweight, you know, um, I'd be able to scout with it on my back, everything. And this year, this summer, I'm going to be practicing a lot more shots because I, uh, mm-hmm. I struggled to the weak side. I yeah. felt just uncomfortable and it's just from my lack of practice is what it is. Yeah. So 
that's um that's that's a big it, but man saddle hunting is so cool and and fun it just kind of just changed it for me it made it kind of fun again just taking that in this little platform i'm going up there I, i'm you know i don't wear my my saddle in i i pack it in but okay still like so i take it out and i put it on and just climb up and everything's just super simple i have my stuff rigged up i never hit the ground you know i go up and i'm not i haven't got as diy with things as most people or like you have um yet i'm planning on modifying my sticks a little bit it's fun just to play around with it and see what works and what doesn't and yeah really quiet in my opinion yeah i mean you start to really kind of build your own system that works for the way you way you want it to work you know for me it's like i actually wear my saddle in um you know everything i have is i need is in my in my pouches and then this year it's like i just kind of switched to using the predator pack i actually have molly kind of attachments that carry my camera and a bo- water bottle so i basically use that as my only pack now so that's things like tiny and yeah. and that's all and that's all i have and the reason i like is because i can take something like a ghillie jacket and i can you know be light and be able to scout as much as i need to to find a hot sign and then once i find it i can either get up a tree quickly and quietly or i can throw a ghillie jacket on and hunt it from the ground like yeah. whatever whatever it is it's not gonna you know it's not a not a deterrent but we're just about to get kicked off this thing man so i want to give you a chance before we get out of here let folks know where they can find out more about bow martonic in east meets west yeah well if you uh, click on my little instagram name here you can usually find a lot of information at bow.martonic and then um and also at east meets west hunt on instagram and anywhere you find podcasts east meets west hunt you'll find it there awesome and then be sure you're following truth from the stand instagram and check out the youtube channel as i'm putting the podcast there and having some videos come out every so often dude we got to make sure we get together more often it shouldn't take this long for us to chat with pennsylvania guys i'm hoping the crazy shit we have going on clears up so i can see you at TAC because i'll be there at the tethered booth as long as uh as long as TAC goes on this year so i'm hoping that it clears up so you and i can uh you and i can get together and i can show you how to make a fire yeah hey (laughs) oh shit well i'm i'm gonna have my own booth there so i don't know what to tell you i'm uh i'm gonna be there and i'm probably gonna talk a lot of shit from afar so okay all right well i'll be sure to stop by then (laughs) all right brother thanks for coming on man and guys out there that chimed in and hopped on thanks for listening longer i see you on there man you're the you're the legend killing bucks on runs trying to follow following your footsteps man i'll talk to you guys soon thanks for checking us out All right, folks, that is a wrap for today's show. I'd like to thank all of you for listening. And if you haven't yet, please head over to iTunes and leave us a five-star rating and be sure to subscribe to the podcast. I'd be super appreciative if you could do those two things for me. And before I shut this thing down, I need to give a big shout out to our partners who continue to help us make this podcast possible. Tethered, Exodus Outdoor Gear, Skull Brew Coffee Company, Gumleaf USA Boots, and Day 6 Specialized Gear. And until next time, we'll see y'all. All right, gang, the new Truth merch is in stock at truthfromthestand.com and on YouTube below any of the Truth From The Stand videos. I've got some new hats, beanies, t-shirts, long-sleeve t-shirts, and sweatshirts. There's even a new do-hard-shit hat for those of us who like to embrace micro-dosing adversity. So head to truthfromthestand.com and check out the new gear and use the code TRUTH, T-R-U-T-H, and save yourself some cash on the new gear.